May the words of our mouths and the meditations of our hearts be always pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So John has just told us there why he wrote his biography of Jesus. And so that we may believe that Jesus really is the Messiah, the one that was sent by God to restore us to God. Now, I'm going to be preaching on that uh, portion of John chapter 20, starting in verse 19. If you have your Bible with you, whether it's on your phone or you brought, you know, pages. Some people still do that, by the way. Uh, So you can open it to there, take notes as you wish. I'm indebted, by the way, to the American Anglican Council's latest newsletter, uh, article for sparking the line of thinking that I'm going to be sharing with you. So I've drawn some from them and from Russell Moore, who is one of the leaders in the Southern Baptist Church, in an article that he wrote. And some of, some of this living water that I hope refreshes you comes from their well. And I wanted you to know that up front. So here we are in John 20, and we'll start with verse 19. It says that Sunday evening, the disciples were meeting behind locked doors because they were afraid of the Jewish leaders. Now, this is the first Easter Sunday, right? This is the, the, that morning Jesus rose from the dead, walked out of the tomb. And, and early that, that morning, well, the disciples hear that he's gone. They heard from Mary and some of the other women. Mary even said, I've seen him. And, and, and so they check it out, but they evidently remain behind locked doors for most of the day trying to figure out what's going on. Is this real? Uh, Jesus had appeared not only to Mary Magdalene, Jesus appeared to Peter. Peter had, had gone off by himself and Jesus appeared to Peter that day. And then later that afternoon, uh, as he was getting into evening, he appeared to two disciples as they were walking on the road that goes between a little town called Emmaus and Jerusalem. One of those guys was named Clopas. Anybody looking for baby names? Clopas is one. That's an idea, as we say. All right, so this group had heard from at least four eyewitnesses that Jesus was alive and that these eyewitnesses had seen him. Mary Magdalene, Peter, Clopas, and somebody else. We don't know who else. Right? And so, but they're still behind locked doors. Plus, they had heard from at least four other women that the angel said he was alive. And still, they're behind locked doors. Why weren't they passing out the news? Jesus had said, hey, tell them I'll meet them in Galilee. Why weren't they headed to Galilee? Fear. They were afraid of the Jewish leaders, right? These Jewish leaders had brought fake charges against Jesus that resulted ultimately with his death being crucified by the Romans. They were scared that the same thing could happen to them. After all, they were the ones who'd spent the last three years with Jesus, right? 
So they were nervous. They were afraid. I mean, the, the culture around them was pretty hostile to Jesus and his followers at this time, right? Anybody that had something to say about Jesus as Messiah was on shaky ground. Not from everybody, because there were people that, that bought into this. There were people that supported it. But the people that seemed to be in power didn't like it at all. Now, I think that we can relate to the disciples somewhat. I think that that we as as the church, as followers of Jesus in the 21st century, 22nd century, anyway, that we are also in that position. We live in a culture that's growing more and more hostile to the message of Christianity, that there is a Messiah, that, that he is alive after being killed, that he really does deserve for us to follow him and, and show him our allegiance and do things the way he said. He's earned that. Uh, all the implications uh, that are in the scriptures about what God wants you know, we, that's something that should be binding on us. We, sh- we should want to live our lives that way. And, and it's a better way to live. And people need to know it. Uh, but people don't want to hear it. Not everybody. But some. And some that seem to be pretty vocal. Now, for instance, scriptures, the, the people that wrote them understood that God had set up the family as the bedrock of society. The best way to raise children is in a home that has both mother and father who are covenanted together for life. Now, we've had in our culture something that is continuing to, uh, to affect us. The sexual revolution started many years ago. Maybe within the lifetime of some of you sitting here. But as it continues to grow and mutate and and grow rapidly and and going into areas that weren't foreseen when it started, it's, it's continuing to unhinge, as Russell Moore says, sex from marriage and marriage from childbearing. Not only communities of every color and economic status are strengthened when families are strengthened, but communities of every color and economic status face brokenness when families are broken apart. It hurts people and it hurts society. And God knew that. That's why God gave us the directions that he, he gave. The sexual revolution, though, is, has been a powerful influence. It's, it's not only bringing things like easy-to-get, no-fault divorce. It's not only bringing things like pornography that's easy to access by everybody from little kids on. But it's undermining now even the basic truth that human beings as well as all the animals, have been created male and female. The most basic need that our society has is strong families with both a mother 
and a father who submit to God through Jesus. Who raise kids lovingly, with love, to understand right and wrong. To make responsible choices with, with godly values. But so many in our society don't want to hear that. That just saying the little bit that I've said can get me canceled. It, 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 could, it could bring, I don't think it will, but it could bring protesters right outside of our building. Because of the hate that I have just spewed for speaking in love what is actually true. We are not facing like the disciples were death by crucifixion. But it's easy to relate to their desire to be behind locked doors. And behind our locked doors, it's easy to become a church that does one of two things. And again, I'm drawn from Mr. Moore in, in what he said. And he said this. He said the first thing that the church can become. The first is the church that is so scared of people that we scream at them in anger and condemnation. Think about all the Facebook posts that you see. If we see ourselves as people who are losing a culture rather than people who have been sent on mission to a culture, this is how we will be. If we do not love our mission field, we will have nothing to say to it. And I, I read that and I was like, oh my goodness, I'm seeing that happen. He goes on, he says, the second sort of church that will fail society is the church that gives up or silences its convictions because they're not popular. This too is fear. And these two sorts of churches won't be able to reach the society of the future. And I'd say the society that we currently live in. If we don't love the people in our culture, and if we aren't willing to speak truth in love, we'll fail. So what do we do with it? I mean, how can we snap our fingers and just change ourselves? Suck it up. Hunker down. Get out there. Unlock the door. Well, I'm, I'm not sure that we can do that on our own. And I don't think that's what Jesus asked his disciples to do. I think that they were moved and changed by things that Jesus did and brought to them and put in them. That we could learn from. Jesus has a way of moving us past locked doors. Into the bigger life of, of what he offers. And he is in hot pursuit of the people in this culture. So let's continue reading through this passage in John. The next thing it says was suddenly Jesus was standing there among them. Evidently locked doors don't mean a whole lot to Jesus. He is God in the flesh. He's all powerful. And, and we need to remember that. Jesus reminded them by, by the very fact that he did this miraculous thing of just being there when the doors were locked to keep everybody out. 
He's miraculous. He's God in the flesh. And God is in charge. And you can't lock him out. It would help us to remember we live in a world that God has made and that God is sovereign over it. He's overseeing it. He is everywhere. We cannot escape from him. He is working in it to bring his kingdom and have it be here just like it is in heaven. All of the universe is ordered this way with God in charge. All of the universe is built upon the foundation that Jesus is Lord. And even if we're worried about the culture we live in, God is still bigger than any culture that has ever existed. He is the Lord. What is too big for him? It may be dark out there. We might weep for the night. But the morning is coming. Joy will come with it. Because he is the Lord. This is our Heavenly Father's world. It is the world for whom he sent his son to redeem it. And he will not be denied. Darkness will not overcome the light. Amen? It goes on. The first thing out of Jesus' mouth, peace be with you. Now, he would have used a Hebrew word. He didn't use English. Are we agreed? The Hebrew word that he would have used, any guesses? Shalom. Shalom. Shalom doesn't really mean peace like we mean when we say peace. Peace means like you got it easy. You don't have conflict. Right? No war. Peace. But that's not really what it meant in Hebrew. By the way, Jesus had conflict his whole ministry. What shalom means is that may you have well-being and fulfillment and wholeness. It is God's deep desire more than for you to be happy, for you to be holy. And I want you to think of that in terms of to be whole. W-H-O-L-E. To be whole-E. To be made full and complete. To grow up into who God has made you to be. Your wounds healed. Come into that fullness. Become fully what it means to be a son or a daughter of the Most High God. Shalom. Jesus imparted that to them. He said it three times to them as we read through this. He wants them to be whole and complete. It says, as he spoke, he showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. You remember nails in his hands on the cross? What was in his side? Spear. The spear that they shoved up in there to see if he was really dead. He was dead. And he showed them his wounds to say, it's really me. And they were filled with joy when they saw the Lord. Of course they were, right? 
But isn't it significant that he was wishing them shalom as he's showing them the means by which they can receive it? It's by his wounds that we are healed. It's by his wounds that we find wholeness and become his children. Again, he said, peace be with you. As the Father sent me, I'm sending you. So Jesus had a purpose. God sent him on purpose. And Jesus said, just like God, the Father sent me, I'm sending you. You've got that purpose now. Jesus called them into what he had been doing. And we're to continue it. That helped them get beyond locked doors. It's as if Jesus were saying, grab hold of the same commission that the Father has given me. Now it's time for you to heal and deliver and preach good news with power. Now you get to pray for the sick and see them healed. Now you can bring forgiveness and reconciliation to broken relationships. Now you can feed multitudes. You will set captives free from bondage and addictions. You will move mountains with your prayers. You'll do greater things than I've done because I'm going to the Father and leaving you the Spirit. You get to do this. You don't have to stay locked behind the doors, being angry with the culture and being fearful of what they'll do if you speak the truth. We have a a purpose that Jesus has given us, and we can't do it on our own, which is why Jesus continued with this. Then he breathed on them, said, receive the Holy Spirit. Jesus didn't begin his ministry until he had received the Holy Spirit when he was baptized by John in the Jordan. You remember the heavens opened up and the Spirit came down on him like a dove? voice spoke from heaven. You remember that? And he tells them, in fact, it's, it's written in such a way that we're supposed to understand this was a command that he gave them. Take this. Grab hold of. What I'm imparting to you now, the Holy Spirit, and he breathed on them. It's, it's reminiscent of God breathing onto this, this muddy clay that he's just fashioned into a man in Genesis. And, and he, then he breathes into it, and, and it becomes the living Adam. Do you remember that? Yeah. Same imagery here. When you believe in Jesus, God breathes his spirit into you. You come alive in a new way. Like Adam came alive when he was just dust a few moments before. You come alive in a new way. You're born again. You have new life. You're different. You're a new creation. For the first time, you're brought into the new thing that God is doing in the universe. Because he does it in you. He brings his kingdom in you because he wants to bring his kingdom through you. And Jesus said, receive the Holy Spirit. Seize it. Grab hold of it. Grab hold of this new life. Don't let it go. 
If, if you just sit around and, and you don't choose to walk out this door, you're just going to sit here. Even with this new life. Don't let this new stuff go. It's what brings you into the fullness of relationship with Jesus and with his Father. It's what makes you ready for your mission in the world that's going to come. It'll come. It comes later. You know, Pentecost was different than this. This was, somebody described it as, when he said, receive the Holy Spirit, it's like this was the conception. And then Pentecost was the birth of the church. But this is where the life started. When you can see with Jesus' eyes, when you can love with Jesus' heart and serve with his hands and act on his behalf, then go. And that's why he could say, then if, if you forgive anyone's sins, they're forgiven. If you don't forgive them, they're not forgiven. Heaven's not going to fight with you on that because you're doing heaven's work. You're seeing with my eyes, loving with my heart, working with my hands. You've got the authority for this. And then we come to Thomas, right? Come to Thomas. Doubting Thomas, you've, you've probably heard about. One of the disciples, Thomas, was not with the others when Jesus came. They told him, Thomas, we have seen him. We've seen the Lord. But Thomas felt like they had felt when the other four people came and said, we've seen the Lord. And they were like, we don't know what to do with that. And Thomas replied, I won't believe it unless I I see the nail wounds in his hands and I put my fingers in them. And I place my hand into that wound in his side. Don't be hard on Thomas. The rest of the disciples, Peter in particular, didn't know what to think until they'd seen Jesus in person. Thomas was no different than they. So eight days later, So if last week was Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday, then this would be tomorrow on their calendar. Eight days later, the disciples were together again, and this time, Thomas was with them. And the doors were locked. Can you imagine that? There they are, behind locked doors, shut up and afraid. But suddenly, as before, Jesus was standing among them. Doing for Thomas what he'd done for the others. Peace be with you. He said, Shalom. I want you. Thomas, you're included in this. I want you to be whole. I want you to be healed. I want you to be fulfilled and grow into the one I've made you to be. And then he said to Thomas, Hey, buddy, come here. Put your finger here. Look at my hands. Put, put your hand into the wound in my side. Don't be faithless any longer. Now, that's a pretty good translation. You're probably familiar with the do not doubt. This may be a translation that you've grown up with. In, in Jesus' language, in, in Aramaic, That would have meant something more along the lines of, don't just sit there wondering if it's real or not. Find out. 
Don't just sit on the sidelines and scratch your head. Get in the game. Come. Touch it. Feel it. Check it out. You, you need proof? Don't just sit there. Get your proof. Come on. It doesn't mean don't question this in your brain. That's not what it meant. It means don't just sit there and let this pass by you. Find out. Do what it takes. Whatever is keeping you from following Jesus, not just believing in Jesus, whatever that means, whatever's keeping you from following him, knowing him, talking with him, listening to him, doing what he says, being changed by him. If you're not unlocking your door and going where he says to go, maybe it's because you're not sure if you believe him or not. Maybe you need what Thomas needed, what the other disciples needed, and that's okay. They turned out all right, didn't they? But if it's proof that you need, do not stop until you do whatever it takes to find out if this is real. That it's true, historically. That, that it's a real experience to know him. This isn't just a mind-washing thing. Some, something's different with people who come to know Jesus. Don't just sit there. He'll prove it to you if you give him the chance. Don't just sit there. Check it out. Talk to someone. Maybe you've seen more than you. Find out why they follow Jesus. How did they come to know this? What happened with them? How did they figure this stuff out? Do you need more evidence? Then search it out. Come to me. I'll share stuff with you if you want. I've got, I'm a professional. I've got loads of this stuff. Put him to the test. Let him prove himself to you. He proved himself to Thomas, to Peter, to Mary Magdalene, to all the apostles. Why not you? So you can say with Thomas, my Lord and my God. And then Jesus told him, you believe because you've seen me. That's not bad. That's a pretty good deal. Anybody like that deal? I'd like that deal. But there's a special blessing on those who believe when they haven't laid eyes on him and touched. There really is something special that, that he will impart to you, even though you may not have seen with your eyes and touched with your fingers, you can still come to know the risen Jesus and the living God. Yeah, we live in a culture that's growing more hostile to Christianity. We do. Yes, it's tempting to stay behind locked doors. But Jesus does for us what he did for the disciples. Because guess what? He loves those people too. So, to unlock our doors, welcome Jesus. Jesus reminds us that he is God. He's in charge. Locked doors don't keep him out. When he's coming after you, you won't be able to turn away. He's going to find a way to get to you. Number two, Jesus imparts his shalom to us. 
this is a blessing to grow into wholeness, to fullness, to maturity in him. And he begins that. And he calls us to share in his purpose. The same purpose that he had. To let all heaven break out. And then he gives us his Holy Spirit. At first to give us new life. So that we can learn of him. Come to him. And then. To have the power that when we go. We go with. The same power that created the universe. And that he knew. So all I can say is, receive him. Wherever you find yourself, let's say yes this morning. Can I pray for us? Oh, Lord, do for us what you did for the disciples back then. Find a way behind our locked doors. Lord, find a way to, to reveal yourself, to prove who you are, where we need that. Give us that new life, Lord. And, and you tell us, grab hold of it. Don't let it go. Oh, God, sometimes it, it just seems to be like sand or water that runs through our fingers and we've let it go. Oh, Lord, breathe into us again. That we can grab on and be filled and changed. Be made new by you. It's all about you. It's all about knowing you. And so, Lord, let your blessing be upon each of us. We, we pray that in your mighty name, the name of Jesus the Messiah, who with the Father and the Holy Spirit is forever glorified. Amen. Amen.